I'm reading this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 14. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Thank you, Val. Good morning. There was an article a while back in the Cape Times in South Africa of a South African man who came to his home, and when he showed up at his home, his home was being robbed by seven robbers. And so six of the robbers fled, and one of the robbers got into a scuffle with the homeowner, And they ended up in the backyard, and the homeowner was a strong man, and he took the robber, and there was a pool in the backyard, and he threw him into the pool. And as he watched the man in the pool, he realized that the man couldn't swim, and that he was going under. And so he jumped into the pool, and he rescued the man from dying out of the pool, the one who was just robbing his house. As the man got out of the pool... He pulled a knife out of his pocket, the robber, and he called back his friends and he went to go attack the homeowner again with a knife. And the report said, and the homeowner just threw him back in the pool. (laughs) But it finished this way. And I saw the man was drowning again. 
And I dove back in and I pulled them out and saved them. And as I read that story, I thought, isn't that amazing how that homeowner reflects the God that we serve? A God who rescues us when we sin against him. A God who continues to to save us. As we're in the story of Samuel and of Saul's life, we see that Saul is like the robbers, continues to attack God, sin against God, steal from God. He's trying to steal God's authority over his people Israel. He's trying to steal God's glory by gaining a reputation for himself. And yet God keeps coming by his side and pulling him out. God keeps allowing him to actually have life, and not only life, but victory in the battles that he's doing. And as I was thinking about the story of Saul, I was thinking, what, a, what an incredible, gracious God we serve. It's the same for you and me. We sin against God, we attack him in a lot of ways, kick against him. And yet God keeps saving us. God keeps stepping into our lives. And as I was thinking about that, I also was reminded of what Romans says. In Romans chapter 6, says this, Where sin increased, grace has increased all the more. So that just as sin has reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness. To bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? Do you remember Paul's answer to that question? He says, are you kidding me? Shall we keep sinning so that grace might increase, so that God keeps pulling us out of the pool? By no means, the scriptures say. Here's why. Because we who are followers of Jesus Christ, we have died to sin. And we can no longer live in it anymore. We have died to sin. And we do not live in it anymore. We've been transformed. We've been changed. God's a God of second chances. And it's amazing as you watch the story with Saul, and the the truth is so much about us. God loves Saul. Loves Saul. Just like he loves you and me. And he keeps giving Saul opportunity to have life and to lead. And he's using Saul for his kingdom purposes. But the other thing about our Lord that we cannot forget is that our Lord is a just judge. Shall we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We know because of who God is that he does. He pulls us out of the pool. But he's also a just judge. That there is consequence for our sin. There's consequence for our choices And we'll see later on in Saul's life that things start to get stripped away from Saul, his kingdom, his authority, his life. We're going to see this morning God's character continue to play out. 
we see that God is doing a bigger work with his people Israel and his continued love for them. They wanted a king. He gave them a king, a king who was leading them down a path that was destructive. At the same time, they were having success in the battles. And they thought, hey, this is all working out. And yet they're starting to see things in Saul that they're really struggling with. And they're starting to suffer the consequence. As you remember last week, they're famished. They're spent in these battles. Saul's just running them over. And God, I think, is starting to reveal that, you know, you think you wanted this king, but what you really want is me. He's working a bigger story. It's part of a bigger love story. And that's the truth for us. We are. We're part of this bigger love story. God's using our lives, and we're included in this, to reveal his love for each and every one. We're part of a love story. I wanted to, before we got into the passage today, I wanted to remind you of of the big theme of Samuel as we study this book together. And we have this, this banner back here. But this is the big theme that you'll see writing over and over in this passage. A heart like God's, growing in a heart like God's. A heart that is, that is falling in love more and more with him, but also a heart that is becoming into the character, growing into the character and the, the true love that God has for us. All that he is, his patience, his kindness, grace, forgiveness, all of these things a heart like God's. And you'll see this theme playing out in 1 Samuel. And I don't want you to miss it. As we follow Saul, we start to see that Saul, his heart, step by step, is drifting away from God. God came to him, anointed him. Samuel ended up anointing Saul. And Saul's heart is is drifting away, doing his own thing. And then we see in contrast to that, the characters in this story, we see Jonathan, the son of Saul, who has a heart that is growing more and more like God's and growing towards him and seeking after him and serving him, obedient to him. And so the question, I think, for all of us is where's our heart going? Is our heart drifting more and more away from the Lord? Or are we like Jonathan who is drawing closer, seeking after, desiring a heart like God's? Let's pray. Father, I just pray this morning that you would reveal that to us. Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, show us, open up our hearts to you to show us where our hearts are actually going. We don't want to hide that. And we don't want to pretend that uh, everything's okay. You know, Father, as we try to follow you, sometimes we get away and we start to do our own thing. And so, Lord, call us back to yourself this morning, I pray. I pray that we would develop and grow like a heart like Jonathan's that sought after you. Bind the enemy. Bind the flesh, Father. Forgive us our sin, Lord. We want to have a heart like yours. In your precious name, amen. As we enter into the story, 
We start to see in verse 36 that, that Saul is wild-eyed, he's frenzied, they've been in hot pursuit, the, the scene is war. He's, he's like a, a rider who's mounted on his horse. The hounds are ready, they have the scent, and it's full charge. Let's go kill the Philistines. Let's continue this pursuit. Let's keep going after them. His warriors are spent, they're, they're starving. He ends up basically moving them towards sin by eating the meat that had blood in it because he wouldn't let them eat. And they got to a place where they were so famished that they ended up finally just eating meat and they they didn't cook it up, which was sinful. But Saul has in mind, I need to keep going after. And so in verse 36, let's keep fighting all day and all morning. Let's keep pursuing them. And here's this warriors who, who feel like they're just on a 22-hour flight to China, you know, just got off the plane, blurry-eyed, jet-lagged. And Saul's like, here we go. Let's go take them on. And they respond this way. Whatever seems good to you. Whatever seems good to you. Now, at first reading, you think, hey, the soldiers are right there. Okay, king, if that's what you want to do, here we go. But the reality is they're not thrilled one little bit. And whatever seems good to you harkens back to the book of Judges. Remember the theme verse in Judges? The overriding theme was this. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. What was good in his own eyes. That's exactly the statement to the king. Hey king, do whatever's right in your own eyes. And by the way, in Scripture, that's always a negative thing. That's a sinful thing. I'm doing whatever I want to do. Not what the Lord has me do. And their response to him is, King, do whatever's right in your own eyes. It's not where we want to go necessarily right now. We're exhausted. We don't want to enter in. Saul keeps giving them this Mel Gibson-like charge, you know, and Braveheart. Here we go, men. The reality about Saul and where he's at in life right now is he, he's becoming a man. I mean, on his donkey, he had the bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker said this, Yes, it really is all about me. That was his bumper sticker. Have you seen those out there? I actually appreciate those bumper stickers because people are honest about their self-centeredness. Saul was incredibly self-focused and self-centered, and his donkey said that. Yes, it really is all about me. So men, let's go take on the Philistines. And they're dying. And he's totally missing what's going on. Because he has his own agenda. His agenda is to kill the Philistines. His agenda is to gain power. His agenda is to make a name for himself. Have you ever gotten into that? Trap, really? I will make a name for myself on this planet. You know, when I was, uh, uh, or several years ago, as as I was pastoring here, uh, several years back, we went together as pastors to a pastor's conference uh, at Regent College in Canada. And so we had to do all the registration, and there was a gal who worked here at the church. Her name was Julie, and she was helping us uh, do the registration form. She said, hey, Rod, could you fill this out uh, so that we can get this in and get everybody 
registered to do, to do the conference. And so, just as a joke, uh, I put on the, my name, uh, I put this, I put, the righteous reverend Rod Raul Ritchie III on the paper, just to tease her. Julie turned it in. So we show up at the conference. And it, this is very true. We show up at the conference, and I show up at the desk, and there's this wonderful gal there helping out. And, and I say, hi, my name's Rod Ritchie, and, and glad to be here. And she starts looking through the list, and then she just she gets this serious look on her face. And she's so apologetic. And she's like, oh, I mean, she almost looked like she was going to cry. Oh, righteous reverend. <laughs> no joke. Righteous reverend. I am so sorry. We could not fit your whole title <laughs> on your name tag. And we tried. It, just, it was so long. We couldn't fit it. I am so, so sorry. And so it just said, it said the righteous reverend Rod on it. <laughs> I got razzed all week by the pastors. <laughs> but I thought, you know what? The fact that she even thought that was a real deal, there must be men out there and women who want these titles, you know, who long for making a name for themselves and how incredible they are. And Saul was right in that place. He had an agenda. He had an agenda to live his own life. He had an agenda that wasn't checking in with the Lord. He had an agenda to make a name for himself. Now, I know as, as followers of Jesus Christ that you never have your own agenda. So let's just talk in theory. <laughs> what happens when we develop our own agenda and we're, we're not aligning it with God's agenda, we're not even checking in, is we start to live a life that, first of all, we think that that we have to make it happen. All the next steps in order to achieve these goals, my goals, I have to make it happen, which is so contrary to what God has for us, which is things happen spiritually because of God's work in your life. It's new covenant living that God wants us to have. New covenant is, is nothing, nothing. I'm not competent for anything except from that which comes from the Lord. When we develop our own agenda, we start to, to run people over that get in the way. We're so, we're so self-focused and we're so focused on where we feel like we need to get that it's like, I don't care who I step on along the way. And when we develop our own agenda of how a thing should go, a way we should go, we don't include God in that at all. And then, honestly, our heart becomes like Saul's, which is growing further and further away from the Lord. I think of when we, when we try to develop our own agenda, it, it looks so foolish, actually, to everybody else. It, it reminds me of, of these families I've seen when I've, I've gone to Disneyland sometimes. And you see these families, and they come in, and they're the families that, you know what, they have read 
every Disney book that there is on, on what you need to do in Disney and all the great things that are going to happen. And I kid you not, they show up to the parks because I see them waiting in line with me, and they, they have, they have a, a, a document, and it's all timed out. And it's like, okay, here's the deal. We're going to get into the park. Here's the agenda for the day. And we're going to go into the park, and first thing, we need to turn right, and we need to run over to Space Mountain because we've got to get a fast pass to Space Mountain because that's the best ride, and we've got to get over there. So run, let's go, kids. And you get going, and you see them, and they're, running, they're literally running through the park, the whole family. And then you, you always see this. You see the parent turn around like, where's Susie, you know? I mean, they lose half the kids on the way because they've got to get over to Space Mountain. And then they, they, they get into line, and they're waiting in line, and they're looking at their schedule, and they're already behind. And, it's like, and then one of the little kids in line, you know, I'm always, I, I seem to always get by these people. But they're right in line. And it's just like the kids are crying because they're exhausted because they've been running to try to get the fast pass. And then one of the little kids, you know, they've been eating junk food all day, and it's like, oh, Dad, I think I'm going to throw up. Hey, we don't have time to throw up. We're getting on the ride, and we're going to go on the ride, and you're going to love this ride. And everybody's crying, and the next thing you know, the husband and the wife are just into it, you know, and it's hot out, and, and I'm always right next to these people. Okay, it's my story. I'm sorry. Confess. It looks, it looks foolish. It really does. Because you set this agenda... And, and you, don't, you, just, you just think, I'm going to make this be the happiest time on the planet because that's what it's going to be. And I am going to get to this ride, and I don't care if Susie and Johnny are sick on the way or if they're scared to death. They're going to do it. And then, by the way, the whole time, there's no just, hey, Lord, thanks for my children and thanks for the joy of doing this stuff. And it just falls apart and it's a mess and you get home and you have the picture standing in front of the castle and you know kids are like ah <laughs> wasn't that a great memory kids <laughs> but that's what agendas do when we don't align with God hey God what do you have for us you know what there's nothing wrong with making plans right yeah actually the proverbs even speak to that hey a, a man in his heart will will make his will make plans but the lord the Lord will guide or the Lord will direct his footsteps. And what that means is that as you make plans, you go, hey, Lord, you know, you've given me a brain, so I'm making some plans here and, and checking in with you. Is this where you want me to go? And it's holding very loosely to those plans that you make. That's a heart like God's. That's a heart seeking after him. But when we get our own agenda and our own way and we say, you know what, yes, it really is all about me, it starts to be destructive. And we really destroy all these relationships. And we start to become destroyed in our spiritual life with, with our closeness to God. Where's your heart right now? What does that look like for you? How are we growing? When I was a youth pastor here, uh, doing youth ministry, you know, we, we just had a lot of kids. You know, if, if you were to look at us numbers-wise, you go, wow, that's a successful ministry. And we were doing lots of things, lots of big program and stuff like that. 
But one day, uh, several years into the ministry, and, you know, I'm thinking I'm so great at what a great youth ministry we have. And a couple of the elders and a couple of pastors who were close with me, they came in and said, you know what, Rod? Uh, you're, you're really hurting a lot of people along the way. And, I mean, I had agenda after agenda. I had program after program. And trust me, uh, I was fixed on we are going to get here. And you know what we did in a lot of ways. But I didn't look behind me and I didn't look under my feet on the people I was stepping on. And they used these words that actually always stuck with me. You, you might have heard them just along the journey of life. But they said, Ron, abrasive is not persuasive. You are, you are moving people, but you're so abrasive in the way you're doing it. Uh, it's just destroying people. That was pretty sobering for me. I was like, wow, you know, all this, all this, hey, I mean, other youth pastors were coming to me like, how do you do youth ministry? Because yours is so thriving. You know, it's interesting when you look at the story of Saul, you go, man, that guy was a good king. He's a good king. At the end of this chapter, you see he has all these incredible victories he, he takes kingship, and he is really powerful, and he's leading, and then he's drawing people into his camp who are mighty warriors. It says he was looking for those who were men of valor, and, and they came along his side. And we see the end of this, that, that there was incredible victory. And if, you were to, if you were to look at Saul and his kingship, you would go, whoa, that guy is successful. That guy's doing a good job. But God's looking right to the heart. And in the middle of all that success, his heart was getting further and further away from the Lord. Where's your heart today? When we develop our own agenda, we think we must make it happen. We don't care what it does to others, and we leave God out of the picture. I love how the priests step in here, finally. They're they're listening to, to Saul, and they're watching him. And the priests, right in the middle of it, as Saul's like, let's go, let's go, let's go, they say, hey, Saul, hold on a minute. Let's draw near to God. And I just want to encourage you in that. Again, there's nothing wrong with goals and going after them and agendas that that you're going, hey, I, I feel like we need to be here. But agendas that are held over to the Lord, and that's drawing near. It's like, Lord, is this really where you want us to go? The priests call Saul to that. Say, stop, Saul. Let's check in with God on this. You see, Saul, Saul is trying to put on the spiritual front. And we do that a lot. We try to look like we got it all together spiritually. You know, in verse 35, he sets up that altar unto the Lord. And it says, this was the first altar that he set up. And you go, wow, Saul is a great guy but I don't actually think that was a good thing. I think he got called to the carpet because the men were sinning. And he's like, okay, I guess we got to set up an altar, you know. Let's get this out of the way so we can actually get to my agenda, which is to kill the Philistines. You know what you don't see when the altar's set up? You don't see the people coming together. And you don't see Saul saying, hey, let's repent before the Lord. We have sinned greatly against him. In the book of Nehemiah, 
when there's sin in the camp, when there's sin in the people of Israel, they go before the Lord and collectively together they say, Lord, forgive us our sin. We repent. And they were broken to the core in the book of Nehemiah. For Saul, I think spirituality was just these steps he needed to do. His heart had grown so far away from the Lord. It was like, okay, I need to do this, and, and, and I'll set up the altar, and then, okay, now let's go get the, the deal. And then he's caught again. He's like, he's like someone sitting at the, at the dining table, and you just take a big bite of bread, and it's in your mouth, and then someone at the table says, don't you think we should pray first? You ever been caught like that? That's what Saul, I think, is feeling. It's like, oh, so let's go get the Philistines, taking the bite, and then the priests say, uh, should we draw near to God first? Oh, yeah. So he inquires of God. But God did not answer. This is where we're going to see the big contrast between Jonathan and Saul in their hearts and what's going on. We're going to see self-centered Saul and we're going to see humble, obedient Jonathan. Saul is all about saving face. He's caught again, and it's like, whoa, I just got snagged right in the middle. It's embarrassing. He's the king, and the priests are calling me to the carpet. He's all about saving face because he's making lots of mistakes, and he's trying to look spiritual, drawing near to God, and 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 he keeps living a life that is, again, just I need to get my agenda, so I'll make it happen but I need to save face in the middle of it. And so he inquires of the Lord, the Lord doesn't answer. And that's, that's really true for a lot of us. You know, when we pray before the Lord and when we ask him to, to give us insight, when we inquire of him, the reality of our prayer lives a lot of times is, is a lot of times we don't have any, any sense of answer or direction from the Lord. You can go one of two ways there. You can go, Lord, I will learn, and in the power of your Spirit, and Lord, help me to wait upon you. That God maybe is helping you to be still and know that he is God. Or, you can do like Saul, and say, you know what? I don't have time to wait on God, because I have an agenda. And so therefore, we are going to move ahead. And the way Saul plays out his agenda and the way that Saul starts to save face, which a lot of times we try to do when when it's recognized that we're sinning and when it's recognized that we're making mistakes or that we're weak, he tries to save face. And so he says, there must be sin in the camp. This is why God is not answering us this day. There must be something about you guys. There must be sin somewhere because God is not answering me, so I will save face. I am the king. I cannot look weak. I cannot look like I've made a mistake. And he tries to save face. There's blame of all that's going on. 
It goes back to the original sin. It goes back to, to Eve saying, well, the serpent's the one who tempted me. And it goes back to Adam saying, well, it's the woman you gave me, God. That's why I, there's sin. Let's blame, let's blame one another. And then in verse 39, we see this incredibly foolish oath. And this, this is so revealing to me on where Saul's heart is. Hey, listen, we will find out what the sin is, and even if it falls on my son Jonathan, he will die. I mean, kind of, you just go, as a dad who has three sons, you go, you, how could you ever make that type of oath? That's a dark heart, isn't it? If it falls upon even my son, we'll take him out. It's foolish because he has his own agenda and he's, he's about saving face. He doesn't care who it affects. Even if it falls on my son. And so he sets the people in verse 40, the royalty is over here and the people of Israel are over here. Let's cast lots. And the people, the Israelites, were spared. Now let's do it between Jonathan and me, casting lots. And then it says, Jonathan was taken. It fell upon him. You know, I've got I to be honest. You know, it's a little, we, we kind of go, Lord, you know, in this casting of lots, in what may have been the Urim and the Thummim, in this seeking what's the right answer here, why wouldn't you point out in that that it fell upon Saul? Why don't you allow it to direct and point towards him? And you know what? I don't, I don't know if we can get the answer to that. I think, I think God was trying to reveal something to the people of Israel about the character of Saul and about the character of Jonathan. And I think God was allowing an opportunity for God to be revealed in who he is and his love for his people, and the godliness of Jonathan. But the, the lots are cast, and it falls upon, falls upon Jonathan. And he cries out, What have you done, Jonathan? I think there's a lot for you and me to learn about Saul's actions and his attempts to save face, which I know you and I do at times, because we're sinful. We don't want to look weak. We don't want to look like we've sinned. We don't want to look like we don't have it all together. But here's what he does, and, and things that, that really distance his heart from God. One of the things that Saul never does is that he never takes a look at his own sin. He doesn't take a look at his own heart and what's going on there. And that we all need to take a look in the mirror and go, Lord, what is it about me? It's like Psalm 139. Search me and know me, O Lord. Reveal to me any way that's against you, Father. We need to recognize our own sin, and then we need to bring it right to the cross. Where you are forgiven, your sin. This is why we have a Savior. And we are in need of a Savior. And take that sin and, and how you've destroyed people and run them over and go, Lord, forgive me, and then go to those people. Saul never, ever once takes a look at his own sin and a heart that becomes further and further away 
from God. God wants us to release that unto him. He tries to spiritualize his bad choices. Look, you know, I inquired of God, and here's all these things. It's like someone, when you go to them, and maybe you've had someone come to you this way. You go to them, and, and you say, hey, I'm seeing this in your life, and they're like, their response is, to their sin is, well, you know, I've prayed about this. I've prayed about this, and so I think, I think I'm okay. I'm okay with God. When everybody in the camp sees that, you know what, your sin is destructive. I just want to offer this to you. You know, if you've had some people come with a loving rebuke about, you know what, this pattern or this path is destructive, don't try to spiritualize it. Take a look at what's going on in your heart. And receive that loving rebuke, that loving correction. Because if you hold on to that sin, it it continues to take you further and further away from God. And it's funny how as Christians we try to spiritualize it to cover. Don't cover anymore. We're broken people in need of a Savior. We're a mess. Just acknowledge your sin. What he doesn't do, what Saul doesn't do, is he never acknowledges that he's wrong. All he had to do was say, you know what, guys? That was a stupid choice. I should have given you some food. That oath I made, you know what? Let's just cancel that one. Bad, bad oath. And now let's, you know, let's eat some food. Let's get refreshed. Let's draw near to God. And now let's go get the Philistines. That's not a bad pursuit to get the Philistines. But it's the destruction along the way. But he wants to save face. He never admits he's wrong. It's amazing how we blame each other. We see this. We don't admit, we, we dig our feet in. We will not give up this turf. I will stand firm. It's principle. We always use that. It's principle. And yet we're killing another person. You know, marriage counseling a lot, you'll get one of the spouses will come in and, and they'll say, this is what John does. John does this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And then you try to ask the other spouse, well, let's take this pie of blame and can we cut a section out of it and can you, can you, can you take a piece of this pie? Where, what, what piece of this pie is yours? And it's amazing, it's amazing when we live in our sin and we live in our flesh and we just say, I will not eat that piece of pie because it's about them. I will stand firm my ground. I didn't do it. I won't acknowledge that I did anything wrong. I just want to encourage you in your marriages, if you're standing firm or trying to save face or trying to show that you're not weak or you're going to demand this position, I just want you to repent before God. Say, Lord, help me to enter in with my spouse. We're fighting over this and we're blaming each other and allow God to work in your marriage, heal you. Saul will not acknowledge, he will not budge, and it destroys his relationship with his son. It destroys the trust with those who follow him. It's a heart that's going further and further away from the Lord. Jonathan, in contrast, has a heart that that is so just obedient and surrendered to God. We see Jonathan, when he is accused of this, and says, Jonathan... 
you're the one. What have you done? And Jonathan says, yeah, you know what, Dad? I did. I tasted the honey. I confess. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't know. And what does Jonathan say? He says, yeah, I must die. I must die. Now, if I'm Jonathan, I'm going, there's no way in the world I would say that. I'd be like, Dad, you're off your rocker. There's no way I'm going down for this one. Actually, you and me are going fist to fist. There's no way. But it's so revealing of the heart of Jonathan in this. He really is a man whose heart is is trusting and at rest in the Lord, isn't he? He allows God to fight for him, like Jackson taught us, the warrior God. He allows God to, to defend him. Again, he really didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't go into battle on that, and he's totally at rest. Like, you know what, Lord? You got me on this. And so I can say to my dad, I guess I die. And he rests in the Lord. You know, when you're in these battles, I just want to encourage you, you don't always have to defend yourself. You have a warrior God who fights for you. And you know what? As Christians, especially when we're in the battle, you don't think the Holy Spirit's working on that other person who's attacking you? Holy Spirit works. I found a lot of times in myself when I'm, you know, doing something pretty cruel to Kena, the Spirit's like, hey, Richie, what are you thinking? And if I'm willing to listen to the Holy Spirit, then I finally go, geez, Lord, that was wrong, and I have to go to my wife. You don't have to defend yourself all the time. Jonathan doesn't. He confesses. He says, okay. He rests in the Lord. And you know what's so amazing in this whole story? Is that here's Saul trying to put on this spiritual image, setting up the altars and inquiring of God, and, and okay, you know, let's pray and all that stuff. And yet the people, the people, here's the bigger picture. The people see godliness in Jonathan. God uses the people to reflect really what our Savior is. We will redeem, we will buy back Jonathan. And so they buy, they redeem Jonathan. Because they see it's God who was with Jonathan. You see, our hearts start to play out in our lives. People see through us. And God is revealed, God is revealed in Jonathan. And I want our lives to be reflective of our God. That when people look at us, they're going, that's a heart that's not some fake Christianity. That's, that's authentic godliness. Trusting in God and resting and allowing God to, to lead their lives. Jonathan's heart, he realizes he's part of the bigger picture of God's kingdom work. And Jonathan knows who deserves the glory, that it's God. And Jonathan comes to a place where he is just grateful to be part of God's story, the bigger picture, and that all of the glory went to his Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just pray this morning that your spirit would reveal in us any way that is going against you. And Lord, do the work that you need to do in our lives this morning, I pray. Father, please, please, uh, 
just uh, pour out your grace on us. Forgive us, Father, for our sin as a church family, our sin against you. Forgive us individually as we walk away from you and we, we try to rob you and we kick against you and we just live with our own agenda. Father, forgive us for our, our own agendas. Would we release those unto you? Lord, we acknowledge you as our Lord and Savior. And Father, we do. We want to have a heart that is like yours. And so purify us, O God, I pray. In your precious name, amen.